our community afternoon using our whiteboard community poll. And there's, of course, a lot of ways people have sought to answer this question, who is Jesus, over the years, even the centuries. Some see Jesus as just a good man, nothing more. Others see Jesus as nothing more than a myth or a fairy tale. Muslims see Jesus as just a prophet. We've seen in John's gospel that already the religious leaders saw him as a blaspheming heretic. It was C.S. Lewis who proposed his well-known Lord Liar or Lunatic Trilemma. But it's here at the cross that we see so clearly who Jesus is. John's going to show us in our text today who Jesus really is. And I pray that we would all have eyes to see him for who he truly is. So let's look there now together. Grab your Bibles. Please turn with me to John 19. We're going to read verses 28 to 42. And if you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1076. And once you're there, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word as I, and follow along as I read. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may, might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus... And saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with spices, with the spices, uh, as is the custom, the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden 
and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, may your word, which is both living and active, open our eyes today to see Jesus for who he really is. And after truly seeing Jesus, may we never be the same again. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So we've already seen over the last few weeks how concerned John is to show his readers just how in control Jesus is of all of these events leading up to and including his crucifixion. And even after his crucifixion, we see here in today's text there's, there's still prophecy being fulfilled uh, after he's dead. John just keeps showing us place after place where these events were part of God's plan. They're not an accident. This is not a tragedy. He's not a victim. This is part of God's plan. Instead of continuing this theme, though, this morning, I want us to look together at these texts that John says are being fulfilled, and I want to show you what they're actually telling us about Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at three things that the cross shows us about Jesus in this text. They're this. The cross reveals Jesus' identity. The cross shows us Jesus' work. And thirdly, the cross demonstrates Jesus' love. These are the three things we're going to see at the cross today. So first, the cross reveals Jesus' identity. John has already said much about Jesus' identity in his gospel. Uh, After all, there's those famous I am statements that Jesus has already declared. I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the bread the light of the world in chapter 8. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. In verse 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, I am the true vine. So much has been said already about Jesus' identity, and John's going to show us more at the cross. In verses 31 to 37, we see two things. One is something that doesn't happen to Jesus that fulfills Scripture, and the other is something that does happen to him that fulfills Scripture as well. First, even though the soldiers were commanded to break the legs of those being crucified, to expedite their death and get them off the cross before the Sabbath, this high holy day, when they come to Jesus, they find that he is already dead and so there's no need to break his legs. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 34, 20 which says he kept all his bones not one of them is broken. But there's another scripture here that might be even more on John's mind. Look with me at Exodus 12 verse 46 This is a text that is giving instructions for how to eat the Passover lamb. Remember, John, all throughout this narrative, he's reminding us of the background. What's happening in the background is that the Passover is happening. 
He wants the Passover to be on our minds as we look at the cross. And look at these instructions that we see about eating the Passover lamb in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 46. This is the background. It shall be eaten. In one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. That's amazing. John is, is reminding us that, that the bones of the Passover lamb are not to be broken here at the crucifixion. But every but because every Passover lamb is a pointer to Jesus, John is trying to make it so clear for us that this Jesus is the true Passover lamb whose bones were not broken. Secondly, John tells us that while Jesus' bones were not broken, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side. Probably, probably to confirm that he was in fact dead. dead. And then, and we, then see we see this account, this account of blood, blood and water coming out of Jesus' side. side. Now look at the look scripture, scripture that says in Zechariah 12, 12, verse 10. 10. And I will, and I will pour, pour out the house of David, David, David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit, spirit of grace, grace and pleas for mercy. mercy. So that so when that they when look, they on, look me, on me, on whom they have they pierced, pierced, they shall they mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This prophecy points to Jesus being pierced. Many stop here, though, and celebrate this fulfilled prophecy, but don't read any further to learn what this means. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was pierced? And what we're to make of this, of the blood and, and the water coming out of his side? I've heard a lot of sermons talking about medical phenomena, how you know this is an unknown thing in the first century, and the fact that John records it is just further evidence that this is historically accurate. Maybe, but I think there's way more going on here that John wants to tell us. Just look five verses down from verse 10 in Zechariah. This is chapter 13, verse 1, which should be included with uh, chapter 12, uh, that section there. It's all part of the same context, Jesus being pierced. We read this in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Isn't that amazing? First, Zechariah tells us the Messiah would be pierced and then that there would be a fountain opened that would cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. This is exactly what blood and water depict. In the Old Testament, the blood of the Passover lamb was for the cleansing of sin. And water was used in purification for, for the purification of, from uncleanness. So the fountain that cleanses us from sin and uncleanness is the blood and the water that comes from Jesus' side after he's pierced. Every Jew knew the Passover story of how they were to kill the Passover lamb and spread its blood on, on their doorposts when the angel of death came that night, it passed over any whose doors were covered by the blood of the lamb. 
And John is showing us at the cross how Jesus is the perfect and most true Passover lamb and that it's now his blood that covers us by faith. And we, sinners who deserve to die, are covered and cleansed by Jesus' blood. This is why John the Baptist declared all the way back in the beginning of John's gospel, in chapter 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's this interpretation of these verses that inspired the English poet William Cowper to write that great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood, which says this, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. The fact that Jesus' legs were not broken and that his side was pierced and caused that blood and water to come out of his side, all of this taken together shows us that Jesus is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that John claimed in chapter one. Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem. He's the only means by which we can be forgiven and made clean, so rejoice Rejoice with me that we can see this so clearly at the cross. Next, now let's look what the cross shows us about Jesus' work now. Look with me at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. John is likely thinking of Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. Remember Psalm twenty-two last week? We made a big deal out of Psalm twenty-three or twenty-two. It's everywhere uh, at the cross. In verse fifteen, it says, "My strength is dried up like a potsherd; my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." Or another passage that John may have in mind here is Psalm 69, 21, which says, They gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. One of the causes of death for some who are crucified is dehydration, thirst. Medical professionals who know a lot about the human body will tell you that to die of dehydration is like having a really bad burn on your inside. Do you ever have a burn? You get burned by the stove or, uh, and it's not just that instant, but it just, it burns for, for a time afterward. Uh, it's like a burning on your insides. You feel like you're, you're, you're burning up, like you've swallowed a furnace. I hope I never have to experience this. So when we see Jesus saying, I thirst, our first instinct might be to think, 
course he's thirsty. He's being crucified. This is what happens to victims of crucifixion. But on second thought, is this, this is really interesting because so far at this point, Jesus hasn't complained or said a word about any of his other physical sufferings. Think about what he's endured up to this point. He's, uh, he's been beaten in the face while blindfolded. He's been flogged 39 times with a whip that likely had pieces of bone and metal on the ends of it that would have ripped his back to ribbons. He's had a crown of thorns pressed down onto his head, tearing into his skin. And nails have been driven through his hands and feet. And yet, Jesus did not say a thing about pain associated with those things. He opened not his mouth. So why now? Why now does Jesus say something about being thirsty if he hasn't said a word about being flogged and nailed to a cross? The answer is because there's something more than physical thirst going on here. In the Bible, thirst is a metaphor for spiritual emptiness that comes from not having God at the center of your life. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist is not just talking about believing in God. Here he's talking about really knowing God and experiencing God as as the central reality of your life. The psalmist is saying that, that the spiritual agony of not really knowing and being with God is as bad as the physical agony of dying of dehydration. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus says to her, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but anyone who drinks the living water that I will give will never be thirsty again. And then the woman's like, yes, please give me this water. Then this is really interesting. I always thought this to be a bit strange. Jesus immediately, abruptly, he changes the subject and wants to talk about her messed up love life. What is that about? Why does he do that? Jesus is trying to teach her that she was relying on her relationships with men. She was relying more on that than on God to satisfy her thirst for love and for meaning and for acceptance. He was trying to tell her that when you dip the bucket of your heart into that well, into those waters, you will be thirsty again because your spiritual thirst was only made to be satisfied in knowing God. And so too for us. We dip the the buckets of our hearts into so many wells that leave us still thirsting when we were made to be satisfied by God and never thirst again. Now back to verse 28, when Jesus says, I thirst, he's not primarily thinking about his physical thirst. It's an expression of the ultimate thirst that Jesus is experiencing, this inner burning of spiritual dehydration. Jesus Christ was experiencing the rejection of God that we all deserve because of our sins. 
He's being rejected by God so that we can be welcomed by him. He was thirsting so that he could give us living water. This is the work that the cross is showing us that Jesus is doing. Now look at verse 30. When Jesus had received uh, the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus says it is finished, this is really one word in Greek which means more than just being done doing something. It means accomplished or totally paid. If you owed money, you paid your bill in full and didn't owe any more money, this is the word that would be written across the top of your bill. Paid in full. This is what Jesus is saying. Paid in full. He's saying, I've paid it all. I've paid the debt. Everything that you owed for your sin, I have accomplished it all. There's nothing more for you to do. Isn't that amazingly good news? Now contrast this with the last words of someone like Buddha. His his last words were reportedly, strive without ceasing. This is the exact opposite of Jesus' last words. Jesus says, I've done all the striving for you. There's nothing left for you to do to have salvation. I give it to you freely. Take a masterpiece work of art like the Mona Lisa. It's finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done to improve on that. In fact, if anyone were to try to improve on the Mona Lisa, it would only make it worse. This is like the salvation that Jesus accomplishes for us. It's a masterpiece. We can only receive it by faith. We can't add to it. To do so would only diminish it. There's two ways people try to do this. They, they try to add to Jesus' work. The first kind of person is, is the one who beats themselves up when they do something wrong or they make a mistake or they sin in some way. To this person, Jesus says, I was beaten for you. Are you saying that what I did wasn't good enough? I was flogged and beaten and nailed to a cross and experienced the separation of God that you deserved. Was that not good enough? That you need to continue to beat yourself up over this? Why are you still trying to pay for your sins? Some of you need to hear this this morning. Because you beat yourselves up when you sin as if you need to do some kind of penance for God to really uh, welcome you back. Jesus has paid it in full. It's finished. The second kind of person is the person who puffs themselves up. They're, They're proud of where they went to school, their successful career, the nice things they own, or, or they may be leaders in the church or leading their favorite ministry. Whatever it is, they're, they're treating Jesus' work as if it weren't enough. They have to prove to themselves and to others that they're worthy of it. The problem with this is you can never keep this up. It will crush you. You will never do that perfectly. So God lovingly affirms those who beat themselves up and he, hum- he humbles those who puff themselves up until you both can see that Jesus finished it already. 
And you stop treating Jesus' death as if it were a nice contribution to your salvation, but that you have to finish it yourself. This is the work of Jesus on the cross. He thirsted to give us living water. He did it completely. There's nothing you can add. No work of yours can add to it and no sin of yours can detract from it. Now let's consider the final thing the cross shows us in our text. The cross demonstrates Jesus' love. In verses 38 to 42, we see two men taking responsibility for burying Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who John tells us is a secret disciple because he feared the Jews. And then we also see Nicodemus, who we met earlier in John chapter 3, who would only come to Jesus under cover of night. It's interesting. Every time Nicodemus is mentioned in, in the Gospel of John, John always reminds us that he came at night. In, in, three, in the three different places, he always reminds, he doesn't want us to forget that. He came at night. He was too concerned about others seeing him with Jesus in broad daylight. What about you? It's easy to come to church on Sundays and give lip service to Jesus when you're surrounded by a bunch of Christians. But what about when you go home? When you go back to work or you go back to school during the week? Are you an undercover Christian? When you're with your friends or your coworkers? Do you fear the ridicule of the world and stay silent? Jesus first encountered these kinds of secret disciples in John 12. Listen to what John writes about them. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ouch. Is that true of us? If we're being honest, I think we can all agree that a secret follower of Jesus may not be a real follower at all. Now the scriptures don't tell us if either of these men, Joseph or Nicodemus, ever really professed faith in Christ for salvation, but Perhaps what we're seeing here is the beginning of these two men stepping out from their hiding places and coming into the light, perhaps. But if this is the case, what is it about the cross that compelled them to take this risk now? That they were unwilling to take while Jesus was still alive. It's possible they did this out of a guilty conscience, But I like to think that for these men, seeing the cross, seeing the events of the cross open their eyes to the love of God for them. That they saw the love of God on the cross. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, or even secret disciples, undercover Christians, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
let me ask you, are you struggling to go public with your faith? Look to the cross where God demonstrates his love for you. Come to Jesus and find forgiveness and life because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And don't come beating yourself up or puffing yourself up because Jesus paid it all. He thirsts that you would have living water. Let's pray. Father,